Uh, if you're here for the first time, uh, we've been working through uh, one line of Scripture for the last few weeks, um, one line in a passage for, in Galatians, and it's in this letter that was written by one of the early followers of Jesus. We know him as Paul, the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul had started several churches after Jesus' death and resurrection. He'd supported churches that were already established, and now he's writing to these churches in a region called Galatia. Are you familiar with that area? Yes, we know it today as modern-day Turkey, and uh, we mention that every week. So, and he's trying to help them learn to cultivate space for God through the Holy Spirit to grow these attributes in their lives. So, we're reading from Galatians chapter 5, verses uh, 22 and 23, where it says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So throughout this series, we've been saying that this is not a to-do list, that we have to figure out somehow how to make ourselves more loving, more patient, more faithful. This is not a to-do list. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. This is what He wants to produce in us. That's a different kind of deal. But you and I do have a role to play. So these are all, I don't know if you've picked up on this, these are all attributes of the character of God. So this is what the character of God displayed in our lives looks like. And it's our responsibility to cultivate the type of soil or the type of character in our heart that actually grows good fruit in our lives. So we can either help or hinder in this process. So a few weeks ago, as we were uh, getting started in this series, we are kind of talking about this idea of cultivating the right kind of soil where the fruit of the Spirit can thrive in our lives. I came across this account on Instagram, uh, a seasonal cut flower farm right here in Trenton, and you might know this person. And she had grown all kinds of these incredible, beautiful flowers, and she would uh, put together these beautiful bouquets and sell them. She sells them at this little stand at the end of her driveway. And I discovered her account about um, kind of midway through the spring. And at that point, her Instagram feed was full of photos of her prepping, like prepping everything for this growing season we're in right now. And she's like getting the seeds that she ordered, meticulously counting all these little tiny little seeds, sometimes putting them into packages, planning on how they'll be planted in her garden, creating little soil plugs and starting seeds indoors on heat pads and racks and transferring seeds to, to larger pots as they grow and hardening off her plants, getting them ready to adjust to outdoor temperatures to get them go to plant outside. And I think this is the beauty of Instagram, um, I think, because sometimes you can kind of uh, get to watch someone go through an entire process from start to finish, whether it's gardening or some carpentry project or restoring an antique car or whatever. You can watch the whole process, and in some cases in time lapse, so that's pretty cool because that's how I prefer to do things. And some of these processes, sometimes it's what people do for a living, and sometimes it's a hobby, but by watching their progress through this, you realize how long like you've been tracking with them and following them and you become very aware of how much work they've put in, how much work it takes, for instance, to grow one flower. It's a lot of work and it's not always successful. Like sometimes they never even start to grow. Sometimes they don't sprout. Sometimes they just rot in the soil or the seed wasn't good. Other times the seedling dies when it's transferred into another pot or they get too much water or not enough water, or it's not warm enough or they don't get enough sunlight or whatever. The list of things that can cause a plant not to grow is extensive. And that's why gardening is a consistent 
commitment. Like every day, every single day, checking the conditions, adding what the plant needs, subtracting what it doesn't need, being attentive, watching from the beginning stages for disease or rot, acting quickly to rectify that kind of situation, but also at the same time, being patient and trusting the process. So it's really an exercise in faithfulness. So we're coming into the last few weeks in our Fruit of the Spirit series where we've been looking at these qualities or these attributes that God wants to produce in our lives. And again, the idea is that isn't that we manufacture these traits in, our, in ourselves, that I can somehow make myself you know, more peaceful or more joyful or more patient. It's more like the flower garden where we cultivate the soil, watch the conditions, pull out the weeds when they pop up, and wait patiently as these qualities grow in us. So what we've been learning is every one of these attributes of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and today, faithfulness, all of them are attributes of the character of God himself. And when you commit your life to him, it's like he plants these little seeds in you. And the Spirit goes to work to grow the garden so that fruit can be produced in us, this kind of fruit. And as we remain faithful to him, remain faithful to the process, more fruit begins to develop and grow. So it should be really no surprise that faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. It is the very essence of God's character. God describes himself over and over in Scripture as faithful. Uh, He introduced himself to, or described himself to Moses as the God of compassion and mercy. In Exodus 34, he says, I'm filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. And the Hebrew word here means reliable, stable, trustworthy, that you can trust God to be consistent in uh, his character, to be faithful. And his faithfulness lays the foundation we need to love him, to follow him, to walk with him. Being fully able to trust God is actually the beginning of living a fruit-filled life. But if we don't fully believe that God is faithful to lead us into the best possible life we can live, then we won't seek his will. We won't trust him with our family. We won't trust him with our job, with our finances, and we won't be able to fully enjoy his presence. So over and over again, the Bible emphasizes the faithfulness of God. This was the experience of God's people throughout history, that he was their faithful creator. He was faithful to his word, to his promises. He was faithful to forgive. He was faithful to his people because he's never abandoned them no matter what. And then ultimately God promised his people a Messiah, a Savior, who would suffer and die for the sins, not only of his people, of his chosen people, but for the whole world, a Savior who would restore a right relationship between God and all of humanity. And there are dozens and dozens of prophecies about the coming of Jesus in the Old Testament. And they're all there for us to learn that God is faithful, that he is trustworthy, that he keeps his promises. On May 30th, 1982, where were you? You don't remember? After sitting out, after sitting out the second game of a doubleheader, Cal Ripken was back in the Orioles lineup where he would remain for 2,632 consecutive games. For 16 years, Cal Ripken would play in every game the Orioles played. It's a major league record for consecutive games played. It's a remarkable record of endurance, toughness, just showing up. Baseball is... Are baseball fans? How many of you are baseball fans? Okay. How many of you know who the Orioles are? Because you're actually just... You're not really a baseball fan. You like the Red Sox. Does anybody? Okay. Um, you're familiar with the Baltimore Orioles. Do you know where Baltimore is? Just wanted to see if we can connect here on this story. So, 
baseball, I know, is not everybody's thing, but it's, this, is a, this is a story about human endurance. Baseball's not necessarily, and, and don't be offended, but is, you know, when someone says, don't be offended, you're about to say something offensive. So <laughs> it's not necessarily the most physical of sports. Like the opportunity for injury in sports, like football and hockey and soccer, I, 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 even soccer, is uh, much higher. For the most part, baseball is, is a lot of standing around, punctuated by bursts of energy, right, if a ball is hit in your direction or if you put a ball into play. But the thing about baseball is its relentless schedule. A 162-game schedule is played in approximately 185 days. That means most weeks teams play six games, and some weeks they play every day, and most of it in the heat of the summer. During that time, there are all sorts of opportunities for pulled muscles and strained tendons and broken bones and general fatigue. It is rare for a baseball player to appear in all 162 games in a single season, uh, let alone every game for 16 seasons. So during Ripken's streak, there were multiple opportunities for him to take a day off. In 1992, he injured his ankle severely enough that the Orioles call up a minor leaguer to sub for him, but he played anyway. And he just played shortstop, so what's the big deal? During the streak, he and his wife had two children. His daughter was born during the offseason, so that was convenient, but his son was born on July 26, 1993, middle of the season. His streak was nearing 2,000 games, also happened to be a scheduled off day for the Orioles, so that worked out well, too. He was hit by pitch. 58 times during the streak. 58 times. Now, I don't know about you, I personally think getting hit by a major league pitch would be enough for me to miss the rest of the season or probably to retire instantly, okay? Instant retirement for me. I'm not standing in front of one of those. In 1996, during the All-Star Game team photo, I read about this and I didn't believe it was true and I went and looked and saw the video this week. A pitcher from the White Sox slipped and fell into Ripken and broke his nose during the team picture in the All-Star game. He still played in the All-Star game, was present uh, in the Orioles lineup two days later, keeping his streak alive. The day that he broke the streak, which had stood for 56 years, is still remembered as one of the most important regular season baseball games in history. Again, if we remember the context, Ripken hit a home run that day, huge banners were unfurled, reading 21-31, which at the time was the new record. Uh, They're unfurled over the right field wall, right? And the game was delayed for about 25 minutes in the middle of the fifth inning when the game became official. And it's his, it's Cal Ripken as a person, and then his streak that were credited for restoring faith in baseball after the strike of 1994. The streak continued for three more years until late in 1998 in the season when Ripken quietly, without notice, just asked his manager to leave him out of the lineup. And the streak ended. And he played three more years after that but began taking regular days off. So I thought of Ripken's streak when I started to think about today's fruit of the Spirit, faithfulness. Faithfulness is not exactly the most flashy characteristic on this list. It's not always eye-catching or newsworthy. Faithfulness is dependability, trustworthiness, reliability. It's being the kind of person that other people can rely on. Faithfulness is by definition the predictable, the habitual, the routine. It's the sort of thing that when we see it, it's easy to take for granted, so we tend not to give much credit for it. But there needs to be a recognition that there is beauty in accomplishing the routine. There's something to be said for doing the little things, the ordinary. I think we need a theology of showing up 
we need to celebrate the discipline of doing what needs to be done. And I think the biblical word for this is faithfulness. Faithfulness is godly. Or maybe to be more accurate, faithfulness is godlike. Because God is faithful. Most of the time we use the word faithfulness, we are talking about God's faithfulness to us. The prophet Jeremiah said, your compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. But when faithfulness is included as a fruit of the Spirit, it's not talking about God's faithfulness to us, but this trait of God being evidenced in us. So it's talking about us displaying the trait of faithfulness in our relationships with, in our relationship with God and in our relationships with one another. Faithfulness is being reliable even in the little things. I think there's much to be said for people who quietly and consistently do the routine things, the little things. So what can we do then to allow the Holy Spirit to grow the fruit of faithfulness in us? What can we do? For an answer, I'd like to turn to a parable of Jesus. This is a story that's often used to talk about how we handle money or to challenge us with like, how to use our gifts to serve God. But this is ultimately a story about faithfulness. In Matthew 25, where Jesus is in the middle of some teaching about what life in his kingdom is like, in Matthew 25, we're going to start reading at verse 14. This is a parable by Jesus, Matthew 25, 14. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. We're not going to do a full study of this story. We're not going to exegete the whole passage. But I want to just talk about it in terms of, of what it says about faithfulness. There are three things I think Jesus speaks to that we could do to increase our faithfulness. So first, I think we need to take stock of our God-given ability. Take stock of our God-given ability. Like being faithful includes understanding the gifts and the strength and the personality and the opportunities that God has given us. We might call that self-awareness. The story begins by telling us that everybody has ability. Everybody is responsible for something. And when we read parables by Jesus, we usually try to figure out like who the characters are supposed to represent. In this one, it's pretty straightforward. The man going on a journey, the master of the household represents Jesus. The servants represent his followers all the way to to us. And the bags of gold represent our responsibilities and our opportunities. And the idea is that God has given everybody on earth a purpose, a reason for being here, and we all have responsibility, and we all have opportunity to serve Him. So I think it's interesting that these responsibilities are given out according to ability. Did you see that? Not every servant gets the same responsibility. They're given responsibility according to their ability. So this is important. We all have some ability. You don't get to just shrug this off like, I don't have any ability. We all have ability. And we all have assignment, okay? We all have responsibility for that. We're not all the same. We don't all have the same abilities or capacity. So we don't all get the same opportunities. But there's, there's no limit that the servants with more abilities are valued. There's no indication that servants with more ability are valued more than the servants with less ability. There's no value judgment here, just a, a recognition that God has not assigned us all the same abilities or responsibilities. And we should understand that and be okay with that. So this is the first step to being faithful. Take stock of your God-given ability. Figure out what areas God has given you responsibility for. Don't get caught up in somebody else and their responsibility or their ability, whether it's more or less. 
It's not about how much we have that matters to God. It's how we use what we have to honor him. Verse 16, the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Number two, we need to act on our God-given opportunities. Act on our God-given opportunities. Being faithful means putting what God has given us to work for him. This is all about opportunity. We need to act on our God-given opportunities. So obviously, these men were expected to do something useful with the master's money. And Jesus doesn't detail what instructions, if any, the man gave to his servants. But clearly, there was an expectation that they would put what they had been given to work for him. They were expected to be stewards of what he put in their hands. And they knew it wasn't their money. They knew they were going to be using it on his behalf. But they also knew that he wanted them to use it well. So notice, everybody has the same opportunity to leverage what they've been given. The guy with the two bags isn't expected to have 10 bags of gold at the end. They weren't expected to have the same results, but they're expected to give the same effort. They were expected to be faithful. And that's really what this is all about. Here's what the master says to the first servant when he returns, verse 20. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. We don't know how he did that. We aren't exactly sure. He might open a lemonade stand. We have no idea. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. In the end, there are only two types of servants in this story. Those who are faithful and those who are not. The faithful servants take their responsibility seriously. They go to work. They leverage their ability to bring gain to the master. But the unfaithful servant does not. He doesn't take advantage of the opportunity before him. He doesn't take responsibility for the gift the master gave him. He kind of sits it out. I think this is the thing that sticks out to me in this parable. What is inexcusable to God is to not use the ability you have. We should all stop and just take a drink of water right now. If you haven't had a drink since I started talking, take a drink of water. It's hot in here. It's 110. Good stuff. Room temperature water. Can't beat it. Feel better? It's the faithlessness that drives the master crazy in this story. Because the third servant simply doesn't show up. He doesn't even try. He doesn't put in any effort. So verse 26, his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have at least received it back with interest. The impression I get is that when the master, uh, that the master, he probably wouldn't have been upset if this servant had invested, any of the servants had invested the money and lost it. The assumption is that, of course, there is risk involved, right? Always there's some risk involved. He wasn't judging on results. He was judging on effort. He, wasn't, he was judging on faithfulness. So what is simply inexcusable here is that the servant did nothing with what was given to him. He sat on it. He buried it. He literally buried it and refused to get into the game. So in light of that, how are you doing? I mean, are you taking advantage of God-given opportunities? Are you leveraging what you have for his glory? Are you being faithful? Number three, take note of our God-given accountability. 
also take note of the fact that I've given you three points, which I never do. <laughs> Some of you are like, what's happening? Take note of our God-given accountability. Like, pay attention to the fact that there will be an accounting for what we do with what we are given. It's interesting to note that the emphasis in this parable is not on the faithful servants, but the unfaithful one. Much more is said by him and to him than the other two. So there's a strong note of warning here. We cannot miss this. Like, here's the story the third servant tells, verse 24. Then the man who'd received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Like, the only one of these servants with a story is the one who got nothing done. The first two didn't have much to say. They just brought the gold and the extra gold. They took what they were given, put it to work, earned some more. They don't need to explain themselves. But this guy's full of excuses. I don't know if you've ever found yourself here. Oh, you are a hard master. I'm not as good at business as, as you are. I was afraid. You know, like he's got a story, but he's got no results. He's a victim of his circumstances. Oh, no, you'll give me a pass because look at my life. It's the master's fault, probably, for not giving him more to start with or whatever. A long list of things. But the master says, it's basically saying there is no excuse for doing nothing with what you have. But he didn't show up. He didn't take care of the ordinary. He didn't put the work in. And yet he wants to blame someone else. In the end, he's going to suffer for it. Verse 28. The master says, So take the bag of gold from him. Give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This man was not faithful. He didn't think the opportunity that came with that single bag of gold was worth the risk, so he refused to take responsibility for it. In the end, it was taken from him. Now, we're going to leave that verse up there for a second because I feel like I need to speak to this one sentence in verse 30. I can't just ignore this, this verse because it seems like it doesn't belong here. Jesus speaks of this darkness. Other, other translations may say that, uh, this utter darkness. And he speaks of it three times in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 8, in chapter 22, and here in chapter 25. Each instance involves a person or a group of people who have incurred, incurred God's displeasure, right? Each time Jesus says there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, what is this, so what is this darkness? Like Jesus never comes out and explicitly ex- identifies where this darkness is. Like, and here's the thing. When we hear language like this in the church, like if you've been around church at all for a while or certain types of churches where you read it in scripture, you, we usually default to a simplistic, oh, he's talking about hell. Because when we think of hell, we normally associate it with what? Darkness and fire, right. Don't you? Maybe you're not as churchy as some of us, but some of us who grew up in church and were born in the church nursery, that's what we associate hell with, fire. So, um, and some, or something like that. So, or a combination of all those things, right? So I just want to encourage you to be really careful about taking a literal interpretation from these verses in Matthew. And you're like, oh, here we go. What do you mean? Don't take it literally. What kind of heresy is this now? We figure it out. Here's an example. If this darkness, if we're going to take this literally, if this darkness was referring to the same place as what we think of as lake of fire, how does this work? Because like on a literal level, this makes no sense. Fire is a source of light, especially to Jesus' audience in the ancient world. In fact, I mean, you're sitting under little balls of fire right now. I don't know what you think those little things are right there on the string, but they're little balls of fire. 
In Jesus, to Jesus' audience in the ancient world, the only light they ever experienced was given by fire, either on a candle or a torch or a campfire or the huge ball of fire in the sky. So wouldn't the very presence of fire dispel this darkness? So if you are interested, I'd love to have a nice iced coffee with you sometime and maybe go down this road into the downward spiral thinking on things like this. That'd be great. The perp- the, my point is this. These are illustrations. This is language for the purpose of making a point. And we have to be really careful because Jesus spoke so much in parables. So anytime Jesus spoke, he's either speaking literally or figuratively. So we have to figure out and be careful not to take words that are spoken in a parable, which is figurative, and ascribe literal meaning to those words. That's inconsistent. Jesus' picture of darkness, though, is a great choice of words because darkness is the absence of light. And if God is light, then the darkness is the absence of God. Perhaps the greatest surprise about the darkness in this verse are those whom, and in Matthew 8 and 22, where Jesus says you'll be thrown into darkness, the people he's talking about, In all of those references in Matthew, it's not pagan unbelievers or unrepentant sinners who are cast into the darkness. They're people who believe in God and who even identify as followers of Jesus. So we need to be careful about being literal in our interpretations sometimes. And keep in mind everything we know about the character of God. Remember that Jesus often spoke in figurative language, especially when speaking in parables. So I think the takeaway here is that the unfaithful servant We'll never know what it is to live in fellowship with the master. Because his life and priorities don't bring honor to the master. And for us to fail to live in faithfulness to God, to fail to act on the opportunities that God gives us, to fail to act in faith when God has given us an opportunity, but we aren't comfortable with acting on it because we aren't sure of the outcome and we aren't sure we can trust him, that all leaves us in a place where there's this great distance between us and God, where our lives are not bringing him glory, where there's nothing but conflict and empty striving and dissatisfaction. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Verse 29, whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance and whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. So he says something very similar earlier in the parable, but he says it in a more positive way. He says it twice, exactly the exact same words in verses 21 and 23, where he's speaking to the faithful servants and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. So remember the definition of faithfulness a few minutes ago? Faithfulness is being reliable even in the little things. So here it is from Jesus himself. You've been faithful with a few things. Faithfulness is being reliable even in the little things. It's showing up, it's taking care of the routine. It's being dependable and trustworthy over a long period of time. So here's a question. Do you think God should give you more responsibility? Like, do you want a bigger role in his kingdom? Then I would ask you, how have you done with what he's already given you? Like how faithful have you been with what he's already asked you to do? God is incredibly faithful to you and me. He shows up day in, day out. But what about us? Like what about you? Is the fruit of the Spirit growing in your life? How are you doing with what he's entrusted to you? So if we know that God himself is faithful, and we know that when we yield our lives to him, he places the seeds of faithfulness in us to grow, how do we cultivate fertile soil in our lives for the Holy Spirit to work and develop that fruit in us? 
I think we boil it down to one word, and it's surrender. Growing in faithfulness requires surrender. Sometimes that looks like obedience. Sometimes it looks like patience. Like step by step, even if you don't know why, going where God leads us, following Jesus' teaching, trusting God's process, believing in His faithfulness. And it's often years later, deep into the process, that we finally get to see how surrender, how our obedience in those little steps that maybe we didn't even understand at the time have developed into something else. I think we often get so focused on things like achievement and success as an outcome like in our relationships, in our jobs, in our service to others, in our finances. But when we focus our, on success as an outcome, we can actually bypass the blessing of being faithful. We tend to see our expectations as essential, and we sometimes miss the beauty of the faithfulness of God. So let's remember that even Jesus, his own faithfulness did not look like success. His obedience, his faithfulness, his surrender to the Father ultimately led to death on a cross. But in Hebrews 12, the writer says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It means there must be joy that comes from faithfulness, even in difficulty, perhaps an even deeper, more meaningful joy that can't be understood when faithfulness and success actually go hand in hand. Like think about the difficult situations in your life that required faithfulness, like in the past, or maybe still require faithfulness in the present. Things like perseverance in a rocky marriage, parenting a difficult teenager, caring for aging relatives, dealing with family tension, or the commitment that turns out to be less fulfilling than you hoped. It's hard to remain faithful in those types of circumstances, but it's possible that it produces something better than you could even imagine. So maybe that's where you find yourself today. Maybe you're facing one of those really difficult situations of being faithful, but I just want to encourage you, cultivating faithfulness requires surrender and obedience and trusting in the faithfulness of God. In 2 Timothy 2, the Apostle Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, talking about God, for he cannot deny who he is. Like even if our faithfulness wavers, we can trust that God's faithfulness never will. So think about that for a second, that his faithfulness will never waver, never has, never will. That's the kind of faithfulness that the Holy Spirit actually wants to develop in us as we live our lives according to God's leading. So you might be thinking, okay, I hear what you're saying. I understand that God is faithful. I understand that he plants these seeds in us. These seeds can grow, that we can become more faithful like him, but I have not done well in this department. Like, I've been lacking in faithfulness. This is my story. I've struggled to be faithful. I've struggled to be faithful in my marriage, in my relationships, or my job. I've, been, I've struggled to be faithful to my commitments. I've struggled to be faithful and follow through to take action where I say I'm going to take action. I've struggled to be faithful when it comes to my own personal growth, my spiritual growth, my emotional health, my relational well-being. I have struggled to be faithful to God. This verse in 2 Timothy should be an encouragement to us because God is faithful. doesn't matter that you were, or maybe where you are lacking in faithfulness, or if you're struggling in faithfulness, he will always be faithful to you. So today, if you find yourself in that space where you're really struggling with being faithful, 
Or maybe given your life circumstances, you're struggling to believe in God's faithfulness. I want to encourage you today that this could be kind of your moment. This could be the time in your life where you can step into that space where you can put your trust in Him. Like really, really trust Him with your whole life, with the everyday, to really experience what surrender to the Holy Spirit looks like, where you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that even though maybe you have struggled and are struggling and maybe have not been as faithful to God or to others as you would like to have been, maybe you know, that beyond a shadow of a doubt that he has remained faithful to you. Even when everything around you, everything that's important to you seems to be falling apart, that he is there with you. Even if it doesn't seem like he's there, even when it looks like he's forgotten about you, even when he is silent, your heavenly father is not absent. He is for you. He is beside you. He wants to embrace relationship with you. I think we all struggle with faithfulness on various levels. There's no question about that. It's a human thing. And this kind of faithfulness isn't something we can generate on our own. But we follow a God who is faithful, who's trustworthy and true. So whatever you're facing today... You can know, like you can be confident that he's there to walk through it with you. So if that's you today, I, I, if you're just starting to see God for who he truly is and you know that you have struggled in this area and you also know that he's faithful and you can come to him. You can bring all your stuff and lay it before him. You can know that he'll be faithful to forgive, faithful to walk with you, faithful to endure, faithful to his promises. That's his character. That's who he is. So let's come to him and enter his presence. Walk with him on this journey. Like all we have to do is to invite him in and to say, God, I want you in my life and he'll be faithful. And as we learn to surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we'll grow in faithfulness because that fruit will grow in us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you today for who you are. Your faithfulness is incredible. Like, we can hardly relate on a human level. But when we stop and intentionally, like, see it, we see that we can trust you. We see that you are consistent in all these different areas of our lives. I pray today for anybody who's listening or watching that has maybe struggled to trust your faithfulness to them, maybe walked through a really difficult season, maybe struggled to see you there. I pray that today they be reminded of who you are, that you are faithful and true. You are consistent and constant. You are with them. You are for them. You are always here. We can lean into your presence. For anybody who's listening or watching today who has not taken this step to enter into relationship with you, I pray that you'd give them the courage to trust you with their soul, that they would experience your presence, that they would sense in their spirit that you are with them, that they would take that step to put their faith and their trust in you. Lord, we love you and we thank you that even when we aren't always faithful to you, that you are always faithful to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.